Welcome to the 416th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. It's February 17th, 2022. And today I welcome New York Times staff editor, Spencer Bocat Lindell to discuss the surging murder rate in the United States amid the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Judith Jude Donahue Ebbinghaus, which appears on Legacy.com and also was featured in the Faces of COVID Twitter feed. Judith Jude Donahue Ebbinghaus, age 69, of Groton, Connecticut, passed away Monday, February 15th. 2021 due to complications of COVID-19. She was born April 16, 1951 in Fulton, New York, the daughter of Francis Donahue and Alice Frawley Donahue. Jude was a graduate of Minishaug Regional High School in Wilbraham, Massachusetts. She studied education at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York, and later completed a master's in education at Eastern Connecticut State University. She began her teaching career in Wyoming, New York, and later moved to Connecticut and taught in Groton Public Schools, including Sacred Heart, Colonel Ledyard, Eastern Point, and Catherine Kolnoski Schools for 38 years. She held many roles as an educator, including second grade classroom teacher, reading specialist, and literacy coach, among others. She ran the GPS summer reading program for many years, and launched parent literacy courses to guide her students' families in supporting their educational potential. She believed in and saw the best in her students, and she connected their other interests to books to cultivate the love of reading and learning she shared with them. In recognition of her service, she was selected to the Groton Educators Hall of Fame. Volunteering was a lifetime value for Jude, and her communities benefited from her enthusiasm, force of nature, energy, and the life experiences she shared through the Girl Scouts, parent-teacher associations, and her daughter's schools and sports teams, as well as the R.E. Fitch Marching Band, the Connecticut Children's Medical Center, the New London County Ostomy Association, which she served as president, Youth Rally as a counselor for youth facing chronic illness, and the United Ostomy Association of America, for which she received the Convitec Great Comebacks Award. In her retirement, she was a kindergarten classroom volunteer at Catherine Kolnoski School a therapy dog handler for Fairview Retirement Home with her husband, Charlie, and an avid quilter contributing to community projects to provide quilts to the homeless, hospice patients, new parents, and masks for elementary school students and frontline healthcare workers. Jude was a devout Catholic and a member of Sacred Heart and St. Mary, Mother of the Redeemer Churches. St. Mary's, she served as a CCD teacher, a lector, and Eucharistic minister. She found immense strength in her faith, and used it to face many challenges, health challenges throughout her life, 
and bring compassion, strength, and understanding to others facing similar challenges. Despite her health challenges, Jude was an adventurous traveler and loved exploring the United States, Ireland, Scotland, Alaska, Myanmar, Thailand, where she traveled for the birth of her grandson, Ronan. She approached new people and cultures with enthusiasm, warmth, and appreciation for different cuisines, music, and worship traditions. Throughout her life, Jude maintained an indomitable spirit and ability to turn negative setbacks into positive opportunities. She continually showed those she loved how to be stronger than they thought they could be and to live life to the fullest possibilities. She held her convictions and beliefs deeply, yet was not afraid to evolve in her opinions, embracing the LGBTQ community, working to become anti-racist in her thinking and actions and deepen her understanding of the role of faith in social justice. Over her life, she empowered thousands of people in her students, learning to read, her co-ostimates to live with independence, her colleagues to become stronger educators, her family and friends to find joy and hope in unlikely places. The obituary of Judith Jude Donahue Ebbinghouse, who died in 2021, complications of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest. Spencer Bocat Lindell is an editor and writer based in Brooklyn. He's currently a staff editor for the New York Times, where he writes Debatable, a newsletter that surveys the spectrum of opinion on some of the week's most pressing disagreements. Over the past two years, he's written about the ethics and politics of vaccine mandates, school reopenings, global vaccine inequities, the lab leak hypothesis, and the responsibility of big tech companies in combating COVID misinformation, among other pandemic-related debates. Before joining the Times, he served on the editorial staffs of Harper's Magazine, the Paris Review, and Axios. He graduated from Yale in 2017. Spencer Bocat Lindell, thanks a lot for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Hi there. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on. It's a pleasure. I heard the siren in the background, a telltale sign. Yes. I'm talking to somebody who's in New York City. <laughs> yes, yeah, or someone who's in a in a COVID hotspot. But actually, no, I'm 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 hopeful that that was just something else that wasn't COVID. <laughs> yeah, that that sound, those ambulances, those sounds meant something quite different in the spring of 2020, didn't they? Yes, yeah, and I've been. Um, I mean, I grew up in the New York area, in New Jersey, and then I, I've lived here uh, in Brooklyn um, for, oh, I guess coming up on oh, four or five years. I don't know, four years or so. Um, and yeah, the the I was here sort of at the the very you know beginning of when the coronavirus hit uh, the U.S. and then it was New York first, and just those you know sort of first. Um, well, really, only I was I was here sort of for the first uh, couple weeks, and then I went back. Um, both of my roommates left, and so mm -hmm. I went uh, to um, New Jersey, where my parents live, for a couple of months to sort of ride it out. But I remember as I was, you know, leaving. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a very dark time. Morgue trucks, you know, all of that. Yeah. yeah. So, how how's the situation in New York City today, pandemic wise? It's yeah, and it's good. I mean, well, I hesitate to say good. Uh, I guess good in in relative terms to where it has been. I would say um, I feel like it's a constant sort of motif on Twitter that people are always trying to push back on this idea of 
New York as this um, like pandemic hellhole where there's both like tons of cases and also everyone is like in lockdown. It very much is is not that that way. We did have um, the Omicron uh, uh, surge that is quite rapidly. It seems um, it has has declined quite rapidly. Um, over the past month or so, um, hospitalizations and, and case rates are, are, you know, at a much more manageable level. Um, and I think be, because of both the combination of, of sort of um, natural infection and, and also just higher vaccination rates in New York City than the national average, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, we'll sort of continue to see things sort of, um, you know, peter out and, and stay at a, at a lower level, especially because I think uh, this time last year, um, things were, were really surging, um, if I recall correctly, although it's hard to remember, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, the time gets compressed in this weird COVID, uh, you know, matrix. Yeah, just, yeah. But, but you know, I, I have been asking guests to share a memory of this time, and you, you did already talking about the early days of the, of the pandemic. <laughs> What else do you really, you know, resonates for you as something that really marks out this pandemic time for you? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the the first days and, and that period of time is very fresh in my memory. And I assume a lot of people's memories because it's it, it was the beginning of, of something of an end, a very sort of, um, you know, it was a, it was a very uh it was a kind of rupture. And so the beginning of that stands out very clearly, but I was trying to think of, um, you know, something that was a little bit happier and uh, in terms of sort of like happy pandemic memories. And um, I was thinking actually about last, um, not this Thanksgiving, but last Thanksgiving. Um, so that was what, November of 2020. Um, this That was before, um, vaccines had had come out um i at the time i live alone now but at the time i was living with two roommates two college friends um in in the sort of same neighborhood that i'm i'm living now one of my uh roommates um went back to his family in california for thanksgiving and like an n95 he like tested both you know both ways he's he's very careful about it i i personally i was like i can't travel on a plane right now i'm just like you know, um, but so it's just me and one of my roommates for Thanksgiving that year. And I have prepared Thanksgiving for my family every year since I was about 13. Um, I sort of developed a, a, a pension for cooking when yeah. I was when I was young. Um, and so that has sort of been my role. But last year, you know, my my parents, even though they live close by, we decided it probably wasn't, you know, a good idea to see each other um, in person and indoors and unmasked. And so it's just me and, and um, my roommate and she is a pescatarian. And so instead of doing Turkey, um, we basically just did, uh, you know, and Turkey for like eight people or whatever. Um, and with four different, you know, sides, we sort mm -hmm. of just did um, a, a, f a roasted fillet of, uh, or a fillet of, of salmon that we roasted in butter. And we had, um, I made like a, a small like potato tart and we had just a couple other things. And um, it was just, and it was actually really lovely um, and very different from any Thanksgiving I've, I've ever had. But like both of us have talked about how, <laughs> you know, the last Thanksgiving we both went 
you know, we saw a uh, family and um, it was a bigger crowd and the turkey, you know, and all of that. We we're both like, actually, like we kind of preferred uh, the the untraditional Thanksgiving one with <laughs> like the salmon and, um, you know, a little bit less fuss. Um, so that that memory, I think, definitely um, is is uh, a good one that I will remember. That's so interesting. And thank you for for sharing that. And um you know, people have shared with me so many different modifications, birthday modifications, yeah. um, funeral modifications, you know, darker things, but also um, Thanksgivings and Christmases and, and these kinds of things. And they probably, I don't know if you'll go back to what you did before, um, but it'll always stand out as one that was a little different. And we have these traditions that hold our, at least I do, these traditions that sort of hold yeah. my year together and then they've all been yeah. modified. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about um, the debatable, the you know the column that you run that you edit uh, on the New York Times, and um, we're going to talk about the uh, several of them. We're going to talk about the murder rape um, discussion first, but I wanted to just talk about the format first, actually, because I, and we were chatting a little bit before we came on. Um, look, speech, disagreement, argument, fine, all in the game in a democracy, very important. Um, to the it's the lifeblood of news, but the both sidesing of complicated issues, um, the sort of random pulling of facts, has I think just been really toxic to people's understanding. I don't think how I knew how toxic it was until the pandemic hit. So first mm -hmm. of all, a note of appreciation for what you do, but I'd like to sort of hear your philosophy of it. Yeah, sure. I and mean, so I guess just to give listeners some some context i um joined the times about um in in the summer of uh i guess 2019 so coming up on on about three years to write this newsletter for um uh the opinion section called debatable and it's, it's sort of uh interesting because i my, my role is not really to um opine or you know uh, i mean i do uh, sometimes a, a little bit uh but my my role is not really to to make or to put my my thumb on the scale for certain policy pre prescriptions, um, I'm not sort of you know advocating for any one particular proposal. But um, my role is really to sort of uh, you know put all of the pieces that that we have at the times, but also you know I would say probably half or more of the pieces that I cite come from other sources. Um, and and to put them sort of in conversation with one another and um, twice a week um, about um, you know a, a particular topic that is um, you know occupying uh, a place of, of interest in um, the national conversation and and that changes you know a, a lot obviously and there's a, a big range you know sometimes it will be um, you know the question of sort of like when should a president be impeached like what constitutes um, you know high crimes and misdemeanors um, that you know sort of famously um, ambiguous language in the constitution and then other times it will be like you know the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict and um, you know and and uh, you know one of the sort of issues that of course um, returns over and over is, is COVID. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, yeah, to, I mean, to your point about, I think it, both sides is on the, the, you know, the, the times we used to have a, um, a, uh, I guess it was a, I, it, I don't think it was a newsletter. I think it was sort of like a column type 
thing. Um, and I, it was something, uh, I want to say like partisan views or, you know, some, something kind of like a left, right and center situation. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of, I think, um, newsletters and, and aggregations organized in, in this way, sort of, you know, trying to put left, right and center, you know, juxtaposing them. And I, I think um, that can be kind of constraining. Um, I think it's constraining both as a as a journalist, but also especially I think for, for readers, because one, I think it primes them to see an argument in a certain way, but also um, just, I think the world is more complicated than than those kinds of designations and especially um when it comes to things like covid i think it's actively unhelpful because you sort of have to shove certain views and in, into or you know ideas about public health into um these predetermined um political ideologies that um you know, are I think are, are unnecessarily, um, you know, it's it's an overused word, but polarizing. You know, I mean, I think even I was writing something today about um, this question of we're seeing a lot of mask mandates being rolled back in um, blue states, um, not just right. not just red states. And you know, one of the questions that is sort of animating that is 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 whether masking has any kind of um, negative effects on on children's um, psychological or social development, and um, there's not a lot of conclusive evidence either way. But it is an interesting thing to you know that I think maybe a lot of Americans don't know that, and um, I believe it's it, uh, the World Health Organization doesn't recommend masking um, for kids under five, and I think in Europe. Their, their CDC equivalent, it's um, they don't recommend it for children under 12. And so the U.S. is kind of an outlier in that we we um, we do recommend masking for children above two. Um, and so it's one of those things where I think because masking has become sort of um, a, a, a signifier of partisan identity right. that... Um, you know, it's it can be helpfully scrambled by bringing in these other examples of like, oh, well, Europe, like Europe is generally, um, you know, a, a little bit more left leaning than the U.S. is probably. Um, so that and, you know, their pandemic response, while not, well, some countries, uh, you know, well, not great. <laughs> They've not not uh, they're better than the U.S. So, you know, right. and in terms of their death tolls. So, um, yeah. Uh, but then on the other hand, you see, um, uh, you know, places in East Asia, as I'm sure you know, being in South Korea, uh, you know, where masking is is seen as more of a uh, particularly, I'm thinking of like Japan, where there's, it's non-political in a completely different way. So, right. Uh, right. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I try to um, get out of the mode of, of, of thinking that there is like, you know, uh, two views on everything that they always track with sort of a left and a right. And, you know, that my only job is to sort of juxtapose them because I, yeah, I think that that sort of does a disservice to, to the issue. Um, whatever it is, it's, it's usually more complicated than that. Unless it's like something sort of like very DC politics, Congress, you know, like 
anything to do with the Senate. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, it is, you know, it is a two party system. Uh, yeah, to exactly. quote the Simpsons. But I mean, I think uh, so there are moments when, of course, that's that's appropriate to understand American politics. But I mean, the other side of it, and I say this as an academic with um, great respect for the esoteric um, knowledge that my colleagues have, but sometimes these discussions can also just get so lost and diffuse in data points that it's hard to to put together a coherent set of, of ideas that can then track to policy choices. And so, again, that's why I like about your approach and what I think others should follow is that, you know, it's a wide range of perspectives, but it's not 50. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to settle somewhere on yeah. this. <laughs> Let me just remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to journalist Spencer Bocat-Lindell today. And I want to turn to one of these discussions on the debatable newsletter. And the um, this one appeared uh, January 20th of this year, 2022. And the headline was, Why Are So Many Americans Killing One Another? Um, that headline does a lot, uh, <laughs> says a lot. It certainly got my attention. And I had been kind of following that a little bit, but um, it was eye-opening for me to see uh, actually how stark the numbers are. Can, can you set out the landscape for us a little bit to understand this issue? Yeah, sure. I mean, so obviously, I mean, I think uh, for a lot of um, Americans, this, um, you know, there, I think it's been sort of on people's radars that there has been a rise in um, crime, but spe specifically, actually, uh, uh, violent crime and um, crime involving guns. There are some other types of um, crime that have actually gone down. Um, I think, uh, yeah, rape and robbery um, has, has gone down, but really, you know, there's there basically have been um, a lot more homicides and 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 particularly um, with guns. Um, and you know, it's still. I think it's important not to um, overstate the case or, or fearmonger. Um, you know, it's not. We're not quite, you know, in the era of like 1990s, um, you know, like major crime wave, but in terms of the, you know, as crime as a whole, but in terms of murders, um, you know, there was a very large um, increase, I believe in 2020, it was, um, yeah, 30% increase in murders, which is the largest one year increase since the start of national record keeping in 1960. Um, and it's climbing a lot more slowly in 2021. Um, but, you know, the, the share of Americans dying of, of uh, homicide had, had hit its, its highest level since 1996. Um, so there was, uh, you know, I think a lot of justified concern about, about the murder rate specifically and, and why it was, why it was, um, why it was rising. So what are some of the different, um, you know, discussion points here and data points that help us make sense of it. Yeah. And and part of what I was trying to do was look at the, um, you know, various theories about what, what was explaining the rise so that we could, because it, it bears very, um, you know, directly on what the, what the potential solutions are. Um, I think my, my colleague, uh, German Lopez, who writes um, on the weekends for the morning briefing, um, which is one of the other Times newsletters sort of wrote um, a piece about some some theories uh, for the rise in crime to which I, I added a couple. Um, 
But one of the things that's sort of frustrating about uh, the study of crime is that it's very um, hard to pinpoint uh, causes. There, there's not even, as far as I, I know, um, a a real consensus about what drove the decline in crime from from the 90s. Um, you know, people are sort of still thinking about that and trying to figure it out. So all this sort of comes with a caveat that a lot of it is sort of conjecture. There are just so many variables. But, you know, there are a few broad theories. One, obviously, of course, is the pandemic. Um, you know, I think the the data uh, from that was that showed this giant, you know, increase in in homicides was, I believe, from from April to April of uh, what was it, of um, 2020 to 2021, if I'm not mistaken. And that was, of course, you know, right after the coronavirus um, hit the U.S. And it was, an, you know, an incredibly, um, you know, traumatic uh, event. And I, I don't use that word lightly. I use it in the literal sense of just, you know, sort of a rupturing of, of a lot of uh, social structures and, and also with the way that people were familiar with living. Um, and so, you know, there's this, uh, you know, if you recall at the beginning, there was, there was, you know, an enormous, just unprecedented surge of, of uh, unemployment, um, you know, the unemployment rate hit its highest since the, the Great Depression, um, you know, millions of jobs were, were lost, obviously, there were, you know, a lot of restrictions put in place. Um, schools closed, housing arrangements, you know, were, were upended, social services were taken away, all of these sort of different factors. And, and so there's this idea um, in, you know, people who study the sort of sociology of, of crime called strain theory, um, this idea that when there are these sort of external circumstances that may cause um, negative emotions, um, and when the sort of outlets for a healthier expression of those emotions are taken away, it, it drives people toward um, uh, toward violent behavior. Um, so that certainly is is you know one theory. Um, one uh, another I think explanation that is is a, is more sort of um, materialist and has the sort of elegance of, of simplicity is that um, the first three months of, of the pandemic in the US saw a massive surge in, in gun sales. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of, um, you know, the, one of the, the sort of things that we know about gun violence um, that research consistently finds is that um, there is a sort of kind of uh, a lot of supply that as the supply of guns go up, um, the number of shootings uh, increase in, in a given area. And so I believe from uh, the first three months or so of, of yeah, March to June of that year, um, the sale of guns exceeded predictions by, by 3 million. Um, and then they spiked again um, uh, in uh, the wake of the uh, Capitol uh, attack. Um, but if you recall also sort of from March to June, we had both the pandemic and then there was also the George Floyd protest. So there was just a right. lot of people who were buying guns. Um, so that is certainly um, a, another thing that, um, you know, that theory has going for it. Um, is that we did see a decrease in in other crimes like rape and robbery, but we saw you know an increase in in, in murder and the percentage of those killings that were perpetrated with a gun 
um, reached 77%. So 70% of murders were, were done with a gun. Um, and that's more than in any previous year. So not only were more murders being committed, mm. but a higher proportion of them were being committed with guns. Um, then, you know, there's also, you know, uh, going back to the George Floyd protest, there was, um, you know, some some theorizing around the idea of, of, of a kind of curdling uh, of police community relations. Um, sometimes I mean, people have have uh, have harkened back to what's known as the, the Ferguson effect, which is this theory that after um, the uh, Ferguson um, protests in, in 2014, there was also a spike in, in murder rates and the theory being that, well, police are either scared or unwilling to do their job. Um, and then some, criminologists have sort of turned that theory on their head. And when there are these sort of very public instances of police brutality, then you have people who are much less um, uh, willing to, or, or who are, who are more um, hesitant to call and cooperate with uh, the police, um, you know, when, whenever a crime does happen or when they think a crime might, might happen. So um, uh, the, the, the thing about this theory that's interesting to note, though, is that um, it's not like the the increase in in murders was general throughout the country, and it was not um, tied to uh, you know sort of uh, cities or certain precincts or or or, or um, legislative reforms with with policing you know it, of course this has all played out amid mm -hmm. a national debate among uh, about about police reform right. and so a lot of people were interested to see you know oh does this does this track onto any sort of ideological um uh a map of of which um counties are are you know maybe more serious about pursuing police reform um but you know that's something that even opponents of thing of, of proposals like defunding the police, for example, will say. You know, well, very few places, first of all, did did that, but also, um, you know, so that certainly can't explain it. And and also because this trend was was general, it didn't really have to do it, or at least it doesn't seem to have to have done with um, any kind of um, policing policy changes. So that's an interesting sort of thing to know about that theory. Um, and a couple other um, theories that I pulled that I thought were interesting is this idea that there was also a decline in witnesses um, during over over the last year, just people were retreating from public space. And there's this idea um, called the sentinel effect, which is that, um, you know, the presence of sentinels in, in a given area and those sentinels can be police, but it can also just be neighborhood watches or, you know, security guards or maybe, uh, you know, doormen, something of, like uh, of that nature, that just the presence of those people in public space um, disincentivizes crime. And of course, you know, right. uh, for the year <laughs> that we we had, uh, there was a lot of retreating from from public space. Um, you know, uh, so that that is also another theory. And then there's this also sort of um, a little bit more uh, abstract, but I, I think it's a it's a um, provocative idea of, of, of sort of anomie, which um, I believe goes back to the uh, uh, Emil Durkheim. Um, 
this this idea of normlessness that happens whenever there is sort of uh, a a sort of traumatic social event that um, the uh, people begin to commit more crimes because they feel like there is no reason that they shouldn't. You know the sort of um, moral guardrails that would normally keep people abiding by the the social contract have have dissolved. And so um, what's interesting, I think, about this theory is that, um, and I believe it was Matt Iglesias who, who wrote a Substack piece about how there's all of this, um, you know, antisocial behavior on the rise and perhaps murder is just like the violent tip of, of that iceberg because we also see that there are more um, car crashes, reckless driving, um, disruptive conduct in schools, um, certainly a lot of poor treatment of people in the service industry. And so that, there, you know, there's perhaps just a lot of people feeling like they can um, are feeling emboldened to flout, uh, you know, common common courtesy and, and perhaps the most extreme example uh, or the most extreme manifestation of um, that uh, pathology is, is, is murder. <laughs> I think, well, thank you for going through it and so thoroughly describing each one of these ideas. And, and undoubtedly, it's probably multi-causal, but I think it's, yeah. it, it also speaks to the um, the problem of talking about the pandemic as a global thing, which we have to epidemiologically, um, yeah. but it manifests itself in social, in the social, in all sorts of specific places, national and sub-national. So some of these trends you're talking about are not, you're not seeing in other countries. Um, right. And you know, I, I just to, to come back to one of those around the unemployment rate, the first one you were talking about, you see a similar um, sort of spike in the murder rate after, let's say, the 2008 fiscal crisis. I mean, is it that are these are these numbers that um, reactive in, in that way? Like you can That's see a an positive interesting effect. Question. That yeah, I uh, yeah, I'm I'm not um, I, I don't actually I haven't looked into that, but that's yeah, that would be a great test case. I mean, I think with, um, you know, to see sort of an event that was um, well, it does look like I'm looking at sort of the graph that we had at, at um, uh, that the Times produced of the per capita sort of murder rate. And it does look like there was a, a, a sort of a bump um, around. I guess that was around like 2007 or so. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, I would, I would want to look into that. But um, yeah, that would certainly be a great way to sort of investigate that that theory. You know, how responsive murder rates are to times of severe economic stress. Um, I mean, you could go back certainly to you know the 70s or, or the Great Depression. But yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah. Just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to journalist Spencer Bocat Lindell today about, uh, we were talking about the murder rate in the United States during the pandemic. Um, I want to turn to another one of the topics that you've covered in the debatable newsletter, and that has to do with, um, and it ties in well, I think, with the murder rate issue, and that has to do with this concern that many people have that the United States is heading towards a civil war. And I'm just going to quote mm -hmm. the lead on this piece 
In January of last year, shortly after the storming of the Capitol, the pollster John Zogby, you write, conducted a national survey that yielded a troubling finding. A plurality of respondents, 46%, believe that the United States is headed for another civil war. So, I mean, again, I see that headline out there um, once in a while, but you kind of patiently went through and explained what's what's behind that. So um, take us inside the this concern. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I think that, you know, there was, I think we sort of reached peak like civil war discourse maybe like a couple of weeks ago. Um, and often you sort of peek under the hood of, of, you know, what sort of ideas are captivating people. And sometimes they are, they are driven by, by very specific things. Um, in the case of the, the civil war discourse, I think it aligned very sort of, um, neatly with the the release of a, of a few books that were contemplating this question of whether um, we could be seeing an, an, a new or another civil war in, in the US. There is one in particular that um, I mentioned, I think has been, um, you know, sort of the focus of, of that conversation by Barbara Walter, who is a political science professor at um, the University of um, California in San Diego. Um, I'm for Getting the, oh, her name, the name of the book is How Civil War Started. And so basically, you know, the, the thesis of, of her book, um, from what I gathered, I know she, she was looking at data that was, um, because she served on a committee to uh, a CIA task force that monitors countries and evaluates um, the risk of civil conflict. And she was using data the data set that that task force relies on. And according to that data, you know, the United States uh, during the Trump presidency regressed for the first time since the 1800s from a democracy into what's called um, an anocracy, which is, you know, something between uh, an autocracy and, and a democracy. Um, and, you know, there, there are certainly, um, the, you know, that, uh, that data set that she uses, I, th I think the CIA task force that she served on, like for forbade, uh, you know, analysts from from applying it to the U.S. specifically. But so that was sort of the reason for, uh, or, or you know, part of the reason for her book. Um, but there have certainly been other, you know, um, international organizations, you know, from an, organizations from an international perspective looking at the U.S. and and um, sort of what's called democratic backsliding. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there was a. I want to say it's called VDEM, which I, I want to say a Swedish institute, but I don't want to get that wrong. Um, they issued a report that, uh, you know, that the, the Republican Party in um, the U.S. had 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 sort of grown, um, you know, steadily more authoritarian, the trend of which, you know, started in, I want to say, I think they, they pegged it to like around 2010, around Obama's election. Um, and it accelerated under Trump such that the right. Republican Party resembles more like the far right sort of nationalist parties in, in Europe rather than a sort of conventional center right party, you know, something like um, Fidesz or um, I believe it's FD right. in, in Germany. Right. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, she was, Barbara Walter and, and her book was was looking at this idea that um, we could be sliding into an anocracy, and when you um, anocracies compared to democracies are at higher risk of, of civil war, and so that's sort of the concern there. Um, one of the I think questions around this is okay. Well, what what does a civil war mean in the 
21st in a sort of 21st century America compared to a 19th century America and one that's not fought over slavery um, and between North and South. Um, and so part of, I think, the thesis requires a sort of re-engineering of what um, what we think of as, as civil war. Um, I cited a piece by, you know, David Remnick, who was saying, you know, it's, it's not going to be this sort of like battlefield drama. Um, it's going to be more like um, vigilante groups um, who are organized and, and, and carrying out attacks um, in various places, um, sort of militia, militia groups, um, of which there are many uh, in the US. Um, and, you know, there have been, I also cited a report from uh, the Atlantic Council about how there's a sort of renewed alarm about um, the mobilization of these militias, especially in, in the wake of um, the Capitol uh, attack. Um, so, you know, basically just this idea that the country is going to devolve into sort of um, uh, random acts of, of political violence um, is, is the, the idea. Um, and certainly, you know, part of, I think also what, what adds fuel to the conversation is the, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, I guess, violent and at worst sort of provocative revolutionary at best rhetoric among some of the more extreme members of the Republican party. Um, and so, you know, you saw Marjorie Taylor Greene before she was suspended from Twitter, who is conducting a survey about a national divorce um, between yeah. uh, Republican and democratic leaning states and uh, Madison Cawthorn, who's a, a, a Republican representative from North Carolina, uh, sort of intimated that, um, you know, if, uh, if our election systems, um, uh, if, if elections keep being, you know, stolen, um, then it's only going to lead to bloodshed, which sort of this, like he was saying it as though, like, I don't want that to happen, but you know, if it does, you know, this is what will happen. Um, so yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly, I think, um, a lot of cause for, concern um but there are also a lot of you know i think thoughtful counter arguments about the idea that um this sort of warning of civil war is at best just sort of kind of threat inflation that is you know not particularly productive but at worst could also prime people to but you know by expecting the worst um could actually um sort of coax people into a preemptive strike mindset, sort of, you know, like uh, because uh, I'm, we're under attack, we have to attack first, kind of thing, um, and that it could actually create a sort of that that warning of civil war could be kind of a, a self fulfilling prophecy. That was a, a argument that um, Fintan O'Toole um, made in, in in the Atlantic um, that I thought was was um, quite compelling, um, and he sort of was comparing it to the the. The troubles uh, in Northern Ireland, where he grew up, and, and just about how this mindset that you know there was that civil war was always on the horizon actually did create the sort of conditions of fear that that became itself a warrant for 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 carnage, as I think he called it. I wanted to. I mean, we you know we can't disentangle that just like everything these days from the pandemic, and that, I sort of bring yeah. that back to to COVID for a second. Um, I wonder have, now, having gone through and, and reviewed all these different viewpoints on the, the, the civil war problem, 
and prognostication in the United States. Um, how much is the, do you see the pandemic playing into that? Because yeah. there are obviously there are opportunists who will take any moment um, of you know stress in the United States and see that as an opportunity to stake out a position and say, this is where we are and this is where the other side is and their side is wrong and therefore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to take that, as you cited Marjorie Taylor Greene, to take that beyond politics and into the realm of the threat of violence is, it's not new in American history. It's it's newer for us recently in American history. Um, but I, I'm at sort of odds with myself about how much the pandemic has provided a sort of new ground for that, because there's also plenty of evidence that the pandemic has provided space for people to show empathy and compassion for mm-hmm. one another and help each other out. That doesn't make as many headlines anymore. But my God, what the healthcare workers have yeah. done. We've seen a lot of sacrifice in America that confounds the notion of a red and a and a blue. So I just wonder your thoughts a little bit more on how the pandemic sort of creates the landscape for this civil war concern. Yeah. I mean, I, I think sort of the, if I were to choose sort of the reigning idiom of uh, especially early uh, COVID coverage, it would be like laid bare, you know, the idea that the pandemic laid bare all of these um, pre-existing uh, social and, and political dysfunctions um, that maybe were, were visible to um, people who are directly affected by it and especially, you know, more sort of economically and socially marginalized people, but they were becoming visible to people who hadn't seen or cared about them uh, before. And so I think, um, you know, some of the concerns that um, animate this discussion over civil war, I think certainly precede um, the pandemic. I mean, concerns about the fairness of U.S., elections um uh you know the representativeness of our electoral institutions um the sort of the worsening uh skew within the the electoral college and and the senate which also creates conditions of you know of, of um uh i don't want to say mistrust but but uh feelings of illegitimacy among um, Democrats as well as they, as they see sort of, you know, the the bias of the Electoral College and, and the Senate sort of tilt, um, you know, by a few more points uh, to to Republicans. Um, although, I mean, I think the the, you know, the allegations of, of voter fraud, um, the way in which those are, we saw were sort of heavily racialized also. I remember, you know, during the election when there is, um, I want to say it might have been Rudy Giuliani, but again, I have to be fact-checked on that. There is this whole um, sort of a desire from the Trump campaign to throw out um, uh, ballots from uh, Detroit specifically, you know, uh, and um, so I think, you know, those certainly have, have, uh, have a have a lineage that I think extends back to, um, you know, you know, many years before the the pandemic. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think I, I I would be hesitant to say that the pandemic is all, or you know, the the sort of um, strife that we're that we're seeing from the pandemic and the, the conflict that it has 
sort of bread that it is all cause and and not a sort of or sorry that it's all symptoms and it's not um sort of a right. a cause a potential cause of some other future um dysfunction i mean one thing that i think about a lot is is how um unfortunately i think um the pandemic has repoliticized uh vaccination, mandatory vaccination in schools um, in a way that it just, I think, obviously, of course, before the pandemic, there was a small coterie yeah. of, of anti-vaxxers, but they were not a major political force. Right. And um, I think now, just because of their proximity to um, an issue that that is so, uh, I guess, um, politicized may not be the right word, again, polarized, um, you know, things like measles vaccinations and, and, and chickenpox vaccinations that the idea, you know, just by virtue of being sort of adjacent to coronavirus vaccines that you will, you have, you already actually do see some, some efforts in the States to say, well, maybe we want to roll back these requirements as well. Um, so that certainly could, you know, that is, uh, obviously the underlying, um, division, um, was there, but, you know, the pandemic creates, you know, sort of knock-on effects um, that then open new fields of, of political contestation. Are you going to see people in Florida fighting over whether there should be mandatory vaccination in schools for measles? Right. Are you going to see more measles outbreaks? Um, you know, uh, especially because measles is so, um, the threshold for herd immunity is so high that, you know, it really doesn't take a, a significant drop in, in uh community vaccination rates for, for there to be outbreaks. So, um, yeah. Uh, and I think certainly also just in terms of, you know, if you want to think about, uh, <laughs> um, the increase in, in murder rates as, as a kind of, um, I mean, those are not the same thing as sort of organized political violence, but I'm sure, you know, some of them, um, were, uh, you know, we have seen a rise in, um, I mean, certainly the, this was, this, I believe it preceded the pandemic, but the, um, I'm forgetting the name of the synagogue um, shooting in, I want to say 2019 um, in Pennsylvania. Um, but um, yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot where I was going with that, but yeah, um, it's, it's hard to say, I think how much the, I, I how much the pandemic, I, I don't think the pandemic would be a sort of, uh, would be a central focus in any kind of, of, civil war but or you know political violence but i do think that it 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 does it's another layer and it can exacerbate you know certainly right. um these it, i think it, it it you know it contributes to this idea of of or this sort of revolutionary fervor this idea of um of oppression, I think are those feelings are very easy to tap into with things around like mm. vaccine mandates and mass mandates. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's, it's the tree of life. Um, right. Tree of life. Uh, yes. Pittsburgh. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, right. I mean, they sort of at a, at one level removed, I mean, what you're describing is something that people who study disasters like myself really wrestle with because um, quite often disasters, and this is a big one, um, are described as sort of moments, like you said, the sort of laid bare thesis that like they, they show, they pull back the curtain, you know, choose your right. metaphor. It shows us yeah. what we, what we couldn't see that was there all along. And I, I think that's right to a point, but as you were just saying, and I really want to emphasize that 
it also creates new worlds. Right. Um, and we have to sort of be careful to manage both of those and to follow those those strains and see there are going to be continuities, but there are also going to be discontinuities, and we have to right. kind of be conscious of both those simultaneously. Um, we're just like we're up on time. I've been a little greedy with your time, but no, um, no, 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 not at all. You know, sorry, as we, for, as for we no, it's great. I really just enjoy hearing the, the many different um, viewpoints for each one of these. It's refreshing to get past the both sides as we discussed. Um, just on the on the way out as we're you know, closing down, I mean, you're in some ways, you're sort of documenting, you described the anime concept earlier. You're kind of weak describing and documenting the weekly American anime of this time, I think, to a certain degree. I'm glad we started yeah. by talking about Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. um, you know, I mean, our, our, you have an interesting recent piece about, you know, talking about when the pandemic ends and, and mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit of a dangerous discourse because it will never end yeah. for some people. But yes. are you looking forward to writing about pieces that don't talk about America falling apart? Or is that just your... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love to, certainly. Um, and, you know, I, I, I mean, I certainly hope that the pandemic recedes as a topic to you know, just as a, as a topic to cover all the time uh, and not just because it's affecting, you know, uh, people who are out of view, because I do think that is a, a huge um, concern right now. We had there was a really um, thoughtful piece in the Times today by um, Greg Gonsalves, who is a, a um, professor at uh, Yale School of Public Health, but also a longtime AIDS activist. And yeah. you know, th great, I think Greg's yeah, and it's yeah, and it's uh, I think there's such a yeah, there is a sort of moral hazard to, to talking about the end uh, of the pandemic. There, there was also because uh, there's another piece that, that uh, was in the Atlantic by, I, I want to say, Catherine Wu and forget Jacob something, Storm something. I'm forgetting the name. It was about how the, the sort of idea, the, the term endemicity has, has so many, you know, the end, end of the pandemic. Uh, as uh, it's used as sort of a shorthand for that, has so many meanings that it doesn't really mean anything, and and it's a it's a deeply sort of affective term. It basically you know can mean sort of whenever people stop caring about it, or when when people have a have have sort of integrated as integrated you know the epidemiological conditions at, into their sense of normalcy, and that sort of affects how we think of diseases that are you know that are endemic today, malaria, which kills 400,000 people every year. And I wrote a piece a few months ago about, or maybe it's more than that, about, about AIDS. And, um, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, this is a, a, a pandemic. And then I was like, wait, actually, is it classified that way? And there's some disagreement. Um, you know, that in 2020, when COVID was sweeping around the world, um, it killed 680,000 people still, AIDS did. And, um, which is really heartbreaking, but it, and it's also just a reminder that you know I don't think most people would think of of um, AIDS as a pandemic virus that we are still. I mean, obviously, if you bring up AIDS, people will be like, yes, of course, there's still you know it's still a problem, right? But it's not really in I think um, the consciousness of a lot of um, 
you know, well-to-do people, particularly in countries where you have access to antiretroviral treatment. And right. so um, Greg Gonsalves' piece was, you know, about sort of this danger that we could see a similar situation happen with, with COVID, obviously very different viruses, but um, you see a sort of, um, uh, you know, a kind of, of uh, hierarchy of attention and, and care develop where, you know, uh, the, the disease sort of seeps into um, populations that are already, you know, sort of marginalized and, and that's happened with AIDS, even and, and HIV, um, in the United States as well. There was a, you know, New York times magazine story a few years back about how it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's still really a major crisis, particularly, um, in the South and, and among, um, poor and black men, um, in particular. And it's just sort of something that is not really, you know, it doesn't occupy as, as sort of a, a, um, a central place in our, our discourse anymore. And is that, you know, is that is that the end of, of AIDS? Like, obviously not for a lot of people. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, I want to um, just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Today is a um, double header. So after this conversation with Spencer Bocat Lindell, please tune in for uh, the next COVID calls episode. I'll be talking to textile artist Kristen Briney, who's been actually producing textiles that document data visualization of COVID-19. So please do tune in for that. And uh, Spencer, I just want to thank you for your your time and, and going through these issues with me and for the work you do with the debatable newsletter. It's great reading. Um, I think a lot of people really rely on it and we look forward to your continued documentation of things we disagree about in this country. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Yeah.